Please take your copy of God's Word and turn into it, John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Our text this morning will be John chapter 5, verses 25 through 29. Let's go once more to our Lord in prayer. Father, you know that the desire of my heart and the desire of these people is for you to be glorified in this place and throughout the world. You know our weakness. You know our dependence upon you, and we know that as well. And so we ask for your Holy Spirit in great measure to be poured upon this place to do that which this text which we are about to dive into reveals to us. For we seek the miraculous, we seek after that thing which glorifies you, and that is to see you through your word raise the dead. And so we ask, Father, for spiritual resurrection this morning of those who are dead in their sins and trespasses. And we pray, Father, that you would do this, not because of any perceived eloquence in me, the speaker, for there is none, but in a demonstration of your most sovereign power. And so we ask, glorify yourself this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear now the word of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, Even so, he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds, to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now, I don't think any of us in this place would deny the fact or the reality that the Bible, as a theme, deals with resurrection. It's one of the most prominent themes of of the scriptures. The Gospels themselves place focus on this, particular focus on this. And no one can really deny that the resurrection is not a major theme of the Gospels. Our Lord raised the dead, Luke 8, 41, 51 through 55. When the synagogue official Jairus came to, to, came to Jesus, he said, My daughter is sick. She is dying. The Lord goes to the, the, uh, the synagogue leader's house, is interrupted rather rudely by the woman with the issue of blood. I say that in jest. He heals her. And he continues on his way to Jairus' house. 
He sees, our Lord sees all of these weeping people outside mourning for this child. Why are you weeping? She's not dead. She is asleep. And those who were gathered there weeping and hearing our Lord's word that she is merely just asleep, she's not dead, knowing that she was in fact dead, begin to mock him and laugh at him. Well, the Lord goes into this young girl's bedroom and he calls this child forth out of the grave. Of course, there's also the story of Lazarus. John 11, 21 through 27, 38 through 44. Jesus goes to his friend's house, Lazarus, and is met by Lazarus' sister. Lord, had you been here, I know you would have made my brother well, but he has died. Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus four days later after his burial cries out his name, Lazarus, come forth. And he comes forth. Our Lord taught about the resurrection, John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection, he says, John six forty. The resurrection of our Lord himself is the climax of his earthly ministry, Matthew twenty, seventeen through nineteen, and Luke nine twenty two. Our Lord repeatedly says that he must go to Jerusalem. He must be handed over to the Jews. They're going to have a mock court, a kangaroo court. They are not going to find me innocent. They will mock me. They will flog me. They will beat me. They will humiliate me. They will turn me over to the Gentiles, and they will crucify me but I will be raised after three days. Nor can anyone deny that the resurrection is a theme of the rest of the New Testament. So it's not only merely contained in the Gospels, but in the rest of the New Testament. The apostles witness to Christ's resurrection placed prominently in the preaching of the apostles. Acts 2, 31-32 and Acts 3, 13-15. Peter's sermon is largely... This Jesus who you have killed, God has raised him from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, 3, 3.8 Jesus has died, Paul says, but he has been risen and he has appeared to all the apostles, last to the least of the apostles, Paul himself. The reality of the believer's spiritual resurrection, Ephesians 2.4.7, Colossians 2.12.13 you were dead in your sins and trespasses, but Christ has raised you from the dead. The promise of a future resurrection, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, and what we all cannot wait for in our pastor's sermon series, Revelation 20, with, with bated breath. Uh, we had a conversation over the week, and... I feel like I may have filled my pastor with a little bit of anxiety as I was kind of pushing on those things. There is a future resurrection. We do not weep like the rest, says Paul, those without hope. 
for Christ is coming with the sound of an archangel, and the dead in him will rise. And of course, John 1, 15 through 20 through 24, Christ's resurrection is a picture of our own resurrection, which we await for as believers. So you have the New Testament, but the resurrection is not merely contained in the New Testament. The Old Testament speaks of the resurrection as a promised future event. Job says in 1925, what, brethren? My Redeemer lives and I with my flesh will see him. Psalm 16.10, he will not abandon him to Sheol, nor will he let his Holy One see decay. Ezekiel 37, 1-14, a favored among all stripes of pastors and preachers of God's word, the vision of dry bones. Ezekiel's told as he looks out among this graveyard of, of bones that are dried and without any moisture, speak now the word of the Lord to them. Ezekiel says, well, God said it, so I, might as well, I should do it. And he does it, and lo and behold, they are rejoined, meat and sinew, all of the parts necessary, physically speaking, for a body to be a body or grafted back on. And now there are these just these remade bodies. The vision goes on and says, now speak to the spirit, that is the air. And he does, and the Holy Spirit comes in and fills them with life. Isaiah 26 19 speaks also of resurrection. Oh, 26 19. Your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed souls. Very clearly speaking of resurrection so no one can doubt and if they did before hearing this introduction to the sermon should not doubt that the bible in its entirety in its whole as its story the theme of resurrection runs through it it's not strictly an old testament idea it's not strictly a new testament idea but it is a scriptural idea now our sermon today on Ezekiel, or I'm sorry, on John 5. As with the Bible, our text speaks of resurrection in two ways. As we read it, there are two resurrections which Jesus is speaking of here. The first is that of spiritual resurrection, and the second being physical. Man is both body and spirit. There is, he's both body and spirit. When the Lord God created man, and placed him in the garden. He first created man, Adam, by forming him out of the dirt. And taking the dirt, he made a body. But was he done? Was he done with just this little dirt body, Adam? No. Because man is more than just a body. Man is also spirit. And so, the Lord God breathed life out of his breath, which is always a depiction of God's spirit. And he breathed life into Adam. Well, that didn't last very long, this life which Adam had. 
And he was given a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he disobeyed it. And lo and behold, the consequence of this disobedience was exactly the consequence which God told him would be the consequence that when he ate of this tree, when he disobeyed God, he would die. And we see this death happening primarily as what death is, and that is death is separation. Body from spirit. The body and spirit which make up man would be separated at death. The body would stay on earth. The spirit would go to its place. The separation is seen by man from man as now there's enmity between our anger hardship between man and his fellow man. And also there is this now separation between man and God. If there is to be a rejoining, it must be through resurrection. Because death is separation. If there, these are to be rejoined, there must, it must happen through resurrection. There must be a, renew, a rejoining of body and spirit, and there must be a rejoining of God with man. So where do we find such resurrection? Where do you get that? Who, who does that kind of thing? Well, our sermon text this morning teaches us that Christ's words resurrect the dead. And so if you are an outliner, Christ's words resurrect the dead, main premise. Minor premise A, Christ's words can resurrect the spiritually dead. Minor premise B, Christ's words will resurrect the physically dead. At this moment, church, at this very moment and in this very place, there are spiritually dead men. I don't mean to frighten anyone by that the children in particular, but the dead are now around you. The spiritually dead in particular are around you. Mankind lost spiritual life because of Adam's disobedience. And like all death, this spiritual death brings about it pollution, moral death, moral guilt, and the condition is the condition of the spiritually dead. To be spiritually dead means to have guilt. It is for the wrath of God to rest upon you. It is to be separated from God, to be without God in the world. It is to be polluted. Now, I don't think we have many hunters here. Jen, our sister Jenny may be a hunter, I don't know. <clears throat> but I don't think we have any hunters here. And I don't, I'm not aware if any of us have grown up on farms, but uh, I've been around farms growing up and I've hunted on occasion. And when you're walking through the woods and you come up on something dead, you know it. And you know it because of its stink. There is a stink and a smell which death has that is unlike anything else. It, it's a smell which when you smell it, you want to do everything you can to get away from it. You may even be 
apt to try essential oils to get rid of this smell that fills your nostrils. There is an instantly in your mind, it conjures up pollution. And moral guilt is that same stench which God smells on the spiritually dead. See, we can't perceive it, thankfully, because we would be surrounded by that stench so often that we may have gone nose blind by it. And perhaps that's part of the problem. But God smells it. It is not a pleasing aroma. We often speak about spiritual guilt in terms of total depravity. This is a word which, or it's a phrase that we throw around often in Reformed circles. It is, forms the, stands for the T in tulip. And in total depravity, we see the, is the condition of the spiritually dead. Total depravity teaches, the Word of God teaches, total depravity. And total depravity means simply that there is no, nothing in a person that God can accept as righteous. That's not to say that there isn't legitimately nice people, or that humanity in general can't do good things to one another. But as it pertains to their life with God, their separation, that spiritual death which has caused separation from God, is so great that when God looks upon any act which the unconverted, the unregenerate person tries to offer up to him as worship, God cannot accept it because of the pollution of it. It's not to say that men are as bad as they can possibly be. Praise be to God, that is not the case. We often hold up Hitler as the kind of human incarnate of evil. Hitler was not as bad as he could have been. Rather, total depravity says that in every one of our parts, we have been defiled. But there's also total inability. You see, that if there's one thing that all dead people do, it's nothing. They don't do anything. You can scream at them and say, wake up. You may be even tempted to take their arm and pick something up with it. But they're not going to do it on their own power. They have no power in of themselves to do it. They are totally unable to do so. They do nothing because they're dead. So the notion that we can just preach the gospel at a spiritually dead person and expect them to, on their own power, on their own initiative, to accept with faith the gospel is preposterous. No, if they are going to accept the gospel, they must be resurrected. Right now, not only are there spiritually dead people around us, but right now, those who hear the words of Christ are made spiritually alive. And this is the good news of this. Of this. The gospel is a summons to life. It's a summons to life. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of God, and those who hear will live. The calling of Christ through His Word, the Gospel, is a summons to life. Christ's words are words to life. Christ and Christ alone must call the dead to life. And it is only those who hear the words of Christ calling by the Spirit who will answer and live. They must be made alive before they will hear. And they will only hear until Christ makes them alive. Which begs the question, the most important question, what does it mean to hear the words of Christ? It is to accept the gospel as from God. It is to take the gospel as what it truly is from God. It is not the clever story are a philosophy which man has crafted in his own power. It is not, as the liberals say, the method in which man tries to understand his own experience. It is not, as the postmoderns say, a meta-narrative, but it is from God. Not only in his inspiration of it, in his word, but from his being. So to hear the words of Christ is to accept this gospel as what it truly is from God. But it is also to believe the gospel by faith. You see, most of our children, I'm going to talk about our children right now, because their experience is much different than my experience. My experience was this. Sunday, get up real early, find something to eat. Go outside, play, come home when it's dark, have a good time. That was my experience. But our children's experience, I believe, is much different than that experience. Their experience is this. I'll just speak about what I know about what goes on in the Mentir house, just because I know what goes on in the Mentir house. Sunday, wake up early, eat breakfast, get ready for church. Do not think about turning the TV on. Today is the Lord's Day. All activities must be catered or centered on Him. Go to church. Hear the, gather with the people of God. Go home. Eat lunch. Take a nap. Wake up. Gather with the people of God. Go to sleep. And because they're so, because our children grow up in this environment, which they're doing all of these Christian-like activities. They may, come to, they may come to the wrong conclusion that they are not spiritually dead in of themselves. Look, I'm doing all the things Christians do. But do you know what that really is? That is your parents taking the spiritually dead arm and moving the pages of the book. You see, you can do all of those things and you can go through all of those motions. Jesus isn't saying go through all the motions and you will be raised. Jesus is saying it is those who hear his word by faith as from God and live it in obedience to him who are those who, who hear and who are spiritually raised. Steve, Pastor, or Mr. Mentir, you're being really hard on me right now. I'm a good kid. 
I get great grades. I do everything my parents asked me to, and I don't put up any fight in doing it. Sure, I might be a little obnoxious toward my sisters. Sure, we might squabble a little bit. Yes, we may, we may even bicker. But down, down in my heart, I am doing everything that is being asked of me. And Jesus takes those excuses, and he says in this text, it is those who hear my words who will have life. It is not a one-time deal. It is not, I heard the gospel preached once, and I told God that I would do this or that for him. But it is a continual and habitual hearing of Christ's word. Accept it as from God, believed in faith, and lived in obedience unto him. It may not be, it, it, it is definitely not going to ever be a perfect hearing, but a genuine hearing. It might come, that hearing may come through many thorns in the flesh, many trials and tribulations. But to hear the words of Christ is not to hear them oftentimes with comfort, but to be comforted it by them. So are you hearing the words of Christ? So not only are there spiritually dead, not only do Christ's words make them spiritually alive, but always Christ is the source of life and judgment. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Christ is the source of life and judgment. The fact that Christ claims to have life in himself is a claim to his deity that he is one with the Father. Christ is able to impart life to others since he possesses it in it life in of of himself. He is the Son of God. God the Father has given Christ the right to judge. This is a claim of Christ that he is their mediator. When we speak of the person of Jesus Christ, we speak of him in two ways. We speak of him, Jesus the man, and Jesus the, the God. Jesus is God-man. He's not merely a man. And this is to our benefit. Because as God, he is able and ready to impart life to us. If he wasn't God, he could not do that. But because he is man, he is our mediator. He is our go-between, us and God. He bridges that separation which spiritual death has brought to us. We flee to Christ, and He's the one who judges us. He is the one who looks with us on, with, with pity. And so, Christian, the great privilege which you have, which is not often expressed nearly enough, but the great privilege which we have as Christians is to know that your judge is also your Savior. And your Savior is also your judge. 
So there is this universal need for this first resurrection which Christ here speaks of, but there is only a particular scope. And so we feel this tension with this universal need and this particular scope. Everyone needs to be this first resurrection. Everyone needs it. We're all naturally spiritually dead, and we need this first resurrection. But there's this tension in that Christ says that only those who hear his word will be raised will experience this first resurrection. And so there's this tension that we have. The scripture, however, is plainly clear. All are spiritually dead, and only Christ raises them to life. The gospel doesn't call men to make decisions. The gospel calls men to, to life in him. And only those who Christ calls us to hear will answer that call. So, another big theological word that we may, have, may be familiar with, and that is hyper-Calvinism. You see, those of us who are familiar with what hyper-Calvinism is, seems to, this, this passage here seems to suggest that Jesus is a hyper-Calvinist. If only those who hear Jesus will be given life, well then only those who will hear Jesus should be offered Christ. And this was the error of the 18th century particular Baptists. They so emphasized irres irresistible grace that they minimized man's responsibility. You see, this passage doesn't teach hyper-Calvinism. It doesn't say since only Christ, only those who hear Christ will live, that then only those who we know hear Christ should be offered Christ. You see, we don't know who they are till they express faith. We don't know who the elect are. And it's not for us to, to try to determine beforehand now this internal call of Christ, this his, what he's speaking of here, this effectual call of Christ, is also most often present with an external call. Not always, probably 99.9% .9 of the time. You need someone preaching the words of Christ that Christ will be heard in their hearts. And so church, what I would have us to take away from this is for us not to embrace this notion that we should not be evangelizing, but that we should be evangelizing all the more. Our fear of rejection should not stop us from evangelizing because in the end it's not them rejecting us, but it is them rejecting Christ. And while God hasn't personally told me, either in private uh, revelation or in revealed revelation, I personally refuse to believe that there are no more elect in Newburgh than those who are before me. But if that's the case, I, I guess I have no choice but to accept it. He then moves on from spiritual resurrection to a physical resurrection. 
Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds, to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds, to a resurrection of judgment. With the first resurrection, the, the spiritual one, there is a universal need, but a particular scope. With the physical resurrection, there is a, it's universal. All men, both good and evil, will be raised to life. But there are only two possible outcomes. All the physically dead will answer Christ's voice. They did not, they, they might not have necessarily answered his voice, his call when they lived, but when they die, they will. They will answer him at that day. All the physically dead will answer Christ's voice. The word grave here is a, is a word that's used as part for the whole. Let us not be confused in thinking that only those who are buried or properly buried, as is the Christian tradition, will be raised. But all the dead, if you drowned in the ocean, if you were eaten by a lion, if you were burned to ash at the stake, you will hear the word of Christ call you from the dead, and you will answer him. The power of unbelief over man's soul is reflected in these words of Christ. Do not marvel at this, because while the redeemed of Christ see the power of Christ's resurrection in the spiritual resurrection, which he has been doing from the time of the cross, onward to this present day. Many of you who have witnessed it yourself in your own life, this mighty power of God to save, to raise the dead to life, both in your own life and in the life of others, you marvel at it. You see the greatness of it. You see power. You see Christ's power in it. But you have to remember who his audience was. It was the unbelieving. And the only thing the unbelieving understand is that which what they can see with their eyes and they will see with their very own eyes this resurrection it is not that the physical resurrection is somehow greater than the spiritual one rather it is because the unbelieving can only accept that which they see with their eyes and they will see this universal resurrection with their eyes Death may be our greatest foe, may be our greatest foe, but death has no power over our Lord Jesus Christ, both over his own person and those who he has created. They will all rise, but there will only be two outcomes. There will not be a third way but there will be only two outcomes. Those who did good will be raised to life, and those who did evil will be raised to death. So what is a good work exactly? What is a good deed? Or as the, uh, the Greek says, who did good, what is it to do good? A good work is pleasing to God when it is done according to his will. So what he commands, by faith in God, 
out of love for God. If what you're doing misses any of those three, it is not a good work. So you can do things according to the will of God, out of duty, carnal duty, and out of love for self. That is not a good work. In order for it to be a good work, it has to be done according to the will of God, by faith in God, and out of love for God. If it misses any of those three, no matter what it may look like on the outside, no matter what, other, what your friends at church may say about it, it is not a good work. We can, we can never say that we are saved by these good works. We can never say that. But we must never ignore the place of good works in the Christian life. A tree is known by its fruit after all. Does a good tree produce bad fruit? No. But does a bad tree produce bad fruit? Every time. A tree is known by its fruit. And the good which is mentioned here represents the Christian's new nature and character. Ephesians 2.10 We often stop at the place where right before it talks about good works. But what does that passage speak of concerning good works? You were saved by grace through faith. Why? Well, you're His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which he has prepared beforehand for us to walk in so those raised to life will be raised on the last day to a perfect expression of life you do not have a perfect expression of life right now but one day you will an expression of life without any reference to sin a perfect expression of life without any hardship without any oppression a perfect expression of life in a body that will not get sick, will not get old, will not die, will not feel its own weakness. You will be raised to a perfect expression of life. But those who did the evil deeds, or who were evil, will be raised to judgment. Evil deeds, of course, are those deeds which are sinful, they are opposed to the will of God. They are done out of love for self and without faith towards the true God. They are always committed in lawlessness. Where the flesh is catered to, where the world is appeased, where the counsel of Satan is listened to, you can be sure that the deed is evil. This is not speaking on, of, the occasional, on the, of the occasion of sin, or sin present in the life of the believer, but it is a habitual pattern and an enslavement to sin. This is what our Lord Jesus Christ is talking about. The grammar of this text points to it. That the verbs in which he uses are the verbs in Greek which communicate a continuance. So it is those who are enslaved to sin who will be judged. And those who are raised to judgment will be raised on the last day, not to a perfect expression of life, but a perfect expression of condemnation. They were totally depraved in this life, 
they will be utterly depraved in the life to come. There will be no good good thing in them. They will not even desire to do good towards one another. But what you will have in hell is a group of people who continually and constantly in torment feel no remorse, no pity. It is said by my, my good friend, Pastor Ben Carlson over at Grace, that if you could reach into the hell fire and pull out a screaming sinner, you would not hear from his mouth, I repent, I repent, but he would spit in the face of God himself if he could. And that is the truth about those who will be raised to judgment on that day. They will be raised to a perfect expression of their condemnation. So this universal scope and only two possible outcomes, a true testament to Christ's power and authority is seen that one day all men will answer Christ's call to be summoned and that they will either receive from him eternal life or eternal judgment. The text could not be more sobering as it reveals to us that which, that which we are becoming, we will forever be. So repent. Those who are spiritually dead, hear the word of Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. So just three quick applications. We must seek the Lord in our evangelism. We must seek the Lord in our evangelism. Christ must raise the spiritually dead. If the spiritually dead will hear, it will be Christ who causes them to hear. It will not be on account of any relatability that you may think you have. It may not be on account of any influence that you think you may have. It, may not be, it, might, it will not come out of any sense of eloquence that you have. It will, be, it will be because and only because Christ has raised them to life. Prayer for the lost then must, must always include pleading for souls of men before we plead for the souls of men. We must ask Christ, plead with Christ to save, to resurrect the spiritually dead that they may flee the wrath that is to come. This verse, this, these verses also teach us that our method of evangelism is the word of Christ. We don't need to invent methods. The method has been given. Preach, them, preach to them Christ. And finally, we ought to pause and consider the fruit which we are producing. Are we hearing Christ? Are we pr producing the fruits that accompany repentance. This isn't to say, are there any black marks on the fruit which we are producing? But it is to say, what is the true nature of that fruit which I am bearing? So with that, let us pray to our God. Our Father in heaven, we do ask that for the sake of Christ, and we look upon him crucified in our hearts, so we see him raised again from the dead. We know, both from your word and by our own personal experience, that you and you alone can raise the spiritually dead. And so we ask, Father, that you would indeed be kind to these spiritually dead among us, 
and raise them to newness in life. We pray that Christ and his word would pierce their ear and in their heart today. In Jesus' name, amen.